0: Hello, and welcome to episode number three of the KMO Show. I'm your host, KMO, and this episode, which is prepared for release onto the World Wide Web on Wednesday, March 15th, 2003, the Ides of March, beware, features a conversation with my old friend and podcasting peer, Doug Lane. I don't remember exactly when I first started to hear from Doug Lane, but it didn't take long uh, before we were talking over, at the time... Skype. (laughs) Remember Skype? (laughs) And appearing as guests on one another's podcasts. Uh, I've stayed at his house. We met up in New York City for the Left Forum one year. I remember we were sitting in the exhibitors area and just recording a conversation between the two of us, uh, and somebody walked by and said, oh, it's my two favorite podcasters. I wish I knew who that was. Anyway, that, uh, that incident was probably over 10 years ago, and I remember Doug and I just sitting in a bar, drinking, talking about how old we were back then. (laughs) So it is a perennially favorite topic because, well, you know, the older you get, the older you get, as the uh, They Might Be Giant song says, you're older than you've ever been, and now you're even older. And now you're even older. And now you're even older. You're older than you've ever been, and now you're older still. Unlike podcasters, the topic never gets old. Anyway, here is the first part of my most recent conversation with Doug Lane.
1: Here we are. Your
0: browser has lost connection to your camera. Yeah, yeah, so it goes.
1: (laughs) All right, we are recording, and this is a podcast. (laughs) Welcome to the Sea Realm. Oh, no, it's not the Sea Realm anymore.
0: No, no, it's not. In fact, it's the KMO show. It rhymes with itself. Nice. Nice. Yeah, the description of the KMO show on the uh, the homepage says it's the Sea Realm podcast without the hyphen.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> or the Sea I... Realm. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I read, I listened to your zero uh, podcast. You where you started to explain why you changed the name, um, and it, it makes sense to me. You're you're really bad. You for a while you were seemingly podcasting a little less, and now you're you're podcasting more again, is that right
0: yeah yeah i haven't I have not been doing many free podcasts um I did like twenty episodes of the padverb podcast last year mm-hmm. uh for which I was you know it's like when you were at zero books i just got i i submitted an invoice for my work, and I get paid mm-hmm. uh and I probably shouldn't say a whole lot as to why. That isn't going on anymore other than to say it didn't have a whole lot to do with me. It's, you know, internal stuff at that company. New show, the KMO show. What's the point? Well, uh, the point is the Sea Realm, the Sea Realm website. Oh, my goodness. Built by many hands over many years. I don't understand it. And uh, whenever something breaks, I have to pay somebody to fix it. Like the, um, the analytics haven't worked in years. I don't know how many people... You know, if I put a show up on that RSS feed, I don't know how many times it gets accessed.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: So just streamlining everything. Cause, you know, that site was, was built bespoke, uh, by many hands over many years to effective or to essentially not effectively, definitely not effectively to do what many a free platform does today, <laughs> you know, but with mm-hmm. far more bells and whistles and, uh, intermediate steps. Mm-hmm. So, I still use it for the vault. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's certainly not built to grow. That's for sure.
1: You're right. Well, I don't know. These days, I'm pretty discouraged about, uh, growing with the content I do online because of the, uh, revelations from the Twitter files. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, maybe I'm paranoid. I don't know. You know what? I'm not paranoid. I just don't know for a fact, <laughs> um, that this has happened, but, uh, it seems to me somewhat likely that a Marxist podcast and YouTube channel and publishing effort would be algorithmically suppressed. I'd get on one of those lists.
0: <clears throat> yeah. See so that that is a a dark road that I don't go down because I could easily, you know, take up that
1: that battle cry as like
0: I've been doing this for 17 years. God damn it. How come I don't have more of an audience?
1: Well, I mean, there was a time on the other YouTube channel where, Mm -hmm. uh, we were getting tens and tens of thousands of views per video. You know, it wouldn't be beyond the possible for us to get a hundred thousand views, half a million views a couple, a couple times. Um, and now we're struggling to get to 10, uh, and if we get four to five, we feel like we've done well. And I don't think it's just because I moved to a new YouTube, you know, channel and started again. That's part of it, but it it's also I don't know. I think there's a a variety of reasons why the the death of the Bernie Sanders campaign and the kind of the death of the left that came along with it has reduced the amount of interest that people have in the topic altogether. Um But also, I do think that there has been especially. Coming up through the pandemic, uh, an attempt to suppress alternative voices that is more pronounced and severe and far reaching than it had been before.
0: So, yeah, that's something that I think comes out of the Twitter files is that um, prior to the release of the documents, people were just going on, you know, impressions and instinct and intuition. And it seemed as though it was mostly right wing voices being uh, censored or Maybe not censored exactly, but uh downgraded. What's what's the terminology for
1: I I you... would say they were being censored. They were just being yeah. censored behind their back. It's shadow banning. It's like you will not get views. I mean that's censorship. Um I don't think that we should a foot around it. These voices <laughs> were censored. <sighs> and by the state. Not just by the not by just, just by Twitter, by the FBI. And the DHS, and well, a whole bunch of other alphabet. I, I won't, I won't bite on the is
0: it censorship or not. If it's <sighs> you know a private platform, as you say, the government was definitely making its wishes known, or parts of the government, we should say, uh, as it's certainly not a unified entity. But um, the, my question, or my my thought that I had started was, you know, before the Twitter files, it was just assumed that it was right wing voices being. Censored or repressed, and mm. now it's you know there are there are critiques of the left coming from the left, and it is the mainstream left that is being protected on you know the corporate media and now the um big tech corporate uh you know social media platforms and it turns out yeah i mean there's there's all kinds of voices that are being suppressed
1: it's a state bureaucracy that's being protected and that might look left wing sometimes some from some points of view but it's not what i think of as the radical left which basically liquidated itself into the democratic party around 2017 um but uh which is very unfortunate so it makes it very difficult to distinguish now but um yeah the it truth out was Suppressed, you know, the world socialist organization was suppressed. The, 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 and <clears throat> a whole lot of right wing voices too, but it's to think of it as right and left is kind of wrong because like, people who are, <laughs> you sound like me now. <laughs> uh, like if you just, the, 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 the people who would step forward and say, well, if you have received, if you've, if you've had COVID, maybe you don't need a booster or people would step forward and say, uh, young people, uh, I don't know if they really need to be vaccinated. Certainly not first. Yeah, they would be suppressed. And despite their credentials and the reasonableness of their arguments, there's something called malinformation. Um, that was being <laughs> uh, put forward. So there's, like if it was disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation. What's malinformation mal-? is malinformation is true information that might lead people to do the wrong things. Oh yes. That's definitely a concept we've we've been missing <laughs> <For sure. laughs> so even though it's true yeah. don't report it and take it down and suppress it
0: see that's that's why my podcasting efforts have failed because i've been trying to navigate the world without the concept of malinformation in my.
1: yeah, head. You, need, <laughs> yeah you need to know about malinformation how could i possibly and this just came out from the Twitter right. post. i'm like i'm on a tear right now like i'm going on to like the youtube channel for the majority report Mm-hmm. And leaving comments like "Sam Cedar is a liar," and this is disgusting. <laughs> this is a sh- this is a show I've been on. You know, these are my buddies. They're not exactly my buddies, but these these are people who I would hope to court so I could get the portion of their audience. And I'm just like, "Fuck this! These people suck." And um so I, I just want to remind you, this is for a free, publicly available podcast. <laughs> okay. We're not we're not in the vault right now. <laughs> I don't care anymore. Came <laughs> up so i'll say it on the i'll say it right out in public the the majority report is carrying water for the democrats who are carrying water for the fbi and it's disgusting that's what i'll say and and i know matt leck i've interviewed matt leck and he should know better than this but he doesn't so he clearly it's not insincere it's not in bad faith he just cares more about whether or not matt taibbi sounds like a friend, somebody he'd want to go to a party with in Brooklyn. <laughs> then he cares about whether or not Matt Taibbi is telling the truth. Uh, so for,
0: for any <laughs> listeners who might not be familiar with my usual production style, um, I had a, a free podcast called the C realm C dash realm. And then I had a behind the paywall podcast called the C realm vault and for the last few years, I've mostly only talked to Doug for the vault because it had a small audience and, you know, it couldn't really go viral and he could say things there that he wouldn't say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> publicly. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that
1: caution is just gone. It's like, That's right. It. Yeah, that's right. So people might not even know who who I am. Should we introduce who I am at this point? Now that I've burned, you know, down whatever bridges <laughs> I might have... Sure, existed. Whatever um, you think is relevant. Okay, so I'm Doug Lane. I used to um, uh, run the Zero Books imprint, which is a British critical theory imprint. Um, I uh, left there. Um, the people who had run it before I I started running it bought the company and got rid of me. So I started my own company called SUBLATION Media. I publish books. I create po- a podcast. Um, I I'm on YouTube. I've written novels uh, uh and you should go and read them they're they're brilliant um <laughs> and uh, uh that's me I'm Doug Lane um internet micro niche celebrity
0: so the novels have been mostly um I would say dry humor science fiction
1: yeah yeah i mean they're kind of sometimes you know they're sad too but <laughs> um <clears throat> but yeah they're kind of they're they're sardonic or sort satirical um, science fiction novels. The last one that came out was in 2018. It was called Bash Bash Revolution, and it was sort of my answer to Ready Player One, um, where the AI took over the world. And uh, it was before the metaverse, you know, just before the metaverse became a thing. And I was like, yeah, what if an AI came took over the world, and what its first its first move? was to get all the people in the world to leave reality and enter augmented reality so that it can control everyone um, directly. And that was the plot of Bash Bash Revolution. And it was a dystopian novel, but the characters in it believed they were saving the world by helping the AI to achieve this task. And they might have been in the, in the novel universe. That's the last one I wrote. And yeah, so it's sort of sort satire kind of, but You know, who knows? Maybe next week it will all come true if if, uh, Zuckerberg has his way and we all live in the metaverse. So we all live in our personally
0: curated metaverses already. It's just we're not wearing, you know, full dive uh, VR goggles and whatnot. Yeah. So for me, like the the sun in the sky right now is um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Which you know, over the course of like twenty-four hours, went from solvent to
1: not solvent. Hmm. Are you familiar with the story? No. Tell me what's going on with the Silicon Valley Bank. When did? Which bank is it? It
0: is called Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, Silicon Valley. Bank. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And not- uh, lots of startups, you know, Silicon Valley startups, uh, their venture capital funding is parked in that bank. <laughs> hmm. And so a lot of them haven't been able to make payroll this week. Ah. And, you know, there's two, the two big stable coins in, in the world of crypto are Tether or USDT. Mm-hmm. And um Circle has one called USDC. Mm-hmm. And Tether has always been super sketchy. Like they just, they seem to print it out of nowhere. And when you ask, you know, what's it backed by, they, they throw up, um, Kind of a hand wavy. Oh, you know, lots of commercial paper, lots of uh, corporate debt instruments are you know behind our right. our token, and it's it's super sketchy. Everybody realizes that there's no way there's nearly enough assets behind it to really give one dollars value to each each tether. But USDC seemed like it was really legit because for every dollar, every you know one dollar stablecoin that they minted. They had one dollar, you know, one actual U.S. dollar in a bank account someplace, but a lot of those dollars were in the Bank of Silicon Valley, which just went belly up. So no, no. Now you know the the responsible, the, you know, the stable, like the genuine stable coin, the one that actually had assets backing it, is the one that is it's lost its dollar peg. So it it is a crazy time in um, well in crypto the- and in tech right now in terms of finance.
1: Does it? Does the government have a responsibility to bail out Silicon Valley or to to reimburse the? I mean, it's a commercial bank, so maybe not, right? Um, well, it's it's
0: the same as any other bank in that depositors' first two hundred and fifty thousand dollars are you know guaranteed by the federal government, but oh right for a, for a startup, you know, with Silicon Va- or with uh, VC money to spend or you know to have in the bank,
1: what's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh yeah, so that's um, that's bad news. Well, what do you think the cause of the collapse of crypto and now the Silicon Valley Bank uh, is? What do you think what went wrong there? Uh, well, we're still reeling from the whole
0: FTX collapse. You know, the right. whole um, Sam Bankman-Fried basically taking people's investment money and using it to buy influence, <laughs> you know, right. to give to politicians to try to get his industry regulated via a, uh, a weaker federal agency than the, you know, the FTC.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, I, I think it's just the interest rates went up. I think like all of the speculative investment, including crypto um, and a whole bunch of other things were, you know, riding on low interest rates, super low interest rates. And when that went up, all that free money went away and everything started that was relying on that started to collapse could be is you know streaming video services and big media companies are going to see problems as well cuz you know they just seemed like the whole yeah tech internet media structure is really just running on on fictitious capital just just a bunch of uh you know loans at no, very low interest rates and now that's going away but that's very my very sketchy, you know, surface <laughs> level.
0: Well, when the government was just giving money to people, you know, just sending checks out, Bitcoin yeah. went from around $20,000 up to around $65,000. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that free money went away and it crashed back down to below 20,000 and then just before all this it was up to around 23 and now it's back down to 20. So, it's basically back where it was. Uh, before the pandemic and the attempts to, you know, keep people solvent by just sending checks out to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot more going on. I mean, the Bitcoin and Ethereum and the other big uh, cryptocurrencies, they tend to go up and down with the tech stocks. Mm-hmm. So if if all you have, if your only economic indicator that you have access to is the price of Bitcoin, you can pretty much track the um the Nasdaq, you know, <laughs> just from the price of Bitcoin. Unless something that is utterly unique to crypto happens. But there's almost nothing that's utterly unique to crypto. It really just does rise and fall with the tech stocks. Mm -hmm. So even if there is something that is unique to crypto that drives down the price of Bitcoin, it's probably going to drive down the NASDAQ as well, all the top players.
1: Yeah, um, it's just uh, that whole realm of crypto is something I kind of uh, stayed away from because of my orthodox Marxism. (laughs) <laughs> um
0: how do they how do they clash?
1: Well, the the uh, the the crypto dream um sort of like the old California uh, tech dream which was that if you if we could create an alternative currency, we could liberate ourselves from the authoritarian structures of society. Um and the idea was that control over the currency is control over commerce and you know independent currency means independence from the society as it is in in a way you know you you can break break free of big corporations break free of the federal government um and form alternative economies and, and i just the marxist view of currency is that it's not at the center of our economic of economic reality but rather you know the way in which we produce commodities is is what sets up the entire economy and the currencies are just sort of a reflection of what happens to currencies is a reflection of what's happening at one level down at the level of production so I didn't have a a lot of confidence that this crypto scheme was going to be a politically liberatory um, now the other side of that is I also wasn't someone who was looking to invest just to get rich I mean if I had you know like if I was thinking Like an investor, I might have been interested in crypto for a while because I, you know, was like, oh, well, it's going up. I could have treated it like any other speculative investment, and in which case, it might have been a good idea for a short while, just like any stock might be. But it wasn't sold that way. It was sold as like, this is going to create these grand social results. We're going to have a better society. We're going to be free. We're going to, we're going to. uh, this is revolutionary, and as soon as you start talking that way, you're like, "Hey, you're <laughs> you're stepping on my brand." Don't yeah. don't.
0: <laughs> I'm the so, one peddling the revolution, but yeah. it's not that revolution. <laughs> That's
1: right, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I mostly look at it as a speculative asset. I'm I'm not. One of the the ideological underpinnings of crypto in general is that it allows for trustless interactions between people because the code is law you know it's it is executed uh, the only way it can be and it's supposedly written in such a way as to foil criminal intentions which is obviously not true um and you know i don't think that eliminating trust between people is is a worthwhile goal i don't think that it is our trust in one another which is holding us back um so yeah i'm not right. i'm not interested in that at all and in right. fact most people who invest in Bitcoin and Ethereum and Cardano and, you know, all the others do so through centralized exchanges like Coinbase. You know, very few people who hold Bitcoin are holding them offline in a cold wallet somewhere, you know, to weather the storms that are going to take down the big institutions. Most people just treat it like a stock, you know, and instead of going to, I use Webull to, you know, follow stocks, but instead of going to Webull, you go to Coinbase or you go to Kraken or... You know, KuCoin or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I, yeah. There's very little that uh, I'm interested in ideologically other than just the concept of sound money. Uh, you know, it, it Bitcoin cannot be inflated into worthlessness. It just can't. Mm-hmm. Whereas any fiat currency can be and most, you know, eventually will be. Yeah. Either quickly <laughs> or just, you know, very slowly over time. Uh, through what seems like quite mild inflation, the value of your money goes to basically zero over the course of a century. But, you know, you would be dead by then, so what do you care?
1: Well, let me, I, I want to change the topic because I'm out of my depth there. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, but, well, as a, you're, you, you and I have been podcasting for roughly the same amount of time. You're actually, you've been around doing it longer than I have, but now we've both been doing it for so long that the difference in our, tenure here is is not right. remarkable um, a couple years
0: difference makes a big deal in junior high not so much at your 40th anniversary <laughs> exactly
1: right <laughs> um so yeah I, I mean i remember you were like an, you were the old hand uh when i started but uh not so much now but what we hope both are do you feel like you're at a point now you can look back on on the podcasting you've done and say oh yeah this has developed it's it's i've accomplished things i wanted to accomplish i I've seen the um, the conversation. We used to talk about the conversation a lot, you know, like in the early days, it'd be like, oh, yeah, we're podcasting. We're part of a, a larger community. We're having a conversation with lots of other podcasters. Do you feel like that's gone away now? Or do you feel that's like that's definitely
0: gone away? Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: <clears throat> when I got started, I was really
0: I was I was not an official member of the uh, the Dopecast podcasting mm-hmm. network, but mm-hmm you know i was regularly talking with those people on and off of podcasts and um yeah i, I the sea realm definitely came up at the same time as a lot of other podcasters that i was you know i was talking to and now i don't listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of the ones i listen to i listen to they're you know they're big it's just a parasocial thing for me like you know listening to joe rogan or something Mm -hmm. I I entertain no fantasies that I'm going to be a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast or that he's going to be on my show. Uh, And that's probably a bad example because I don't I almost never listen to an entire episode of his podcast. But um, yeah. And and yeah, there's a lot of podcasts that I'll check in with from time to time. But I am mostly going on guests and topics now rather than, you know, having one source that I'm just following all the time because it's it's built credibility with me through, you know, a long period of uh, really high quality content.
1: The only podcast I listen to every week now, I watch on YouTube, but it's mm-hmm. a podcast as well. And it's called um, the Non Zero podcast. It used to be called Blogging Heads TV. So that's uh, uh, Robert, Robert Wright? Robert Wright and Mickey Kouse.
0: Yeah, I read the book, uh, Non Zero, in mm-hmm. the 90s, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a foundational text for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I have not read the book and I don't know that if I'm, I, I, would be honest if I was saying I watch them and listen to them because I agree with anything they say. In fact, I generally don't have the same politics of either of them or the same perspective and on almost anything. Like they'll, they'll give a movie review and I'm almost always completely opposed to their judgment. <laughs> um, but I, I just find them to be somehow reputable as people, as that parasocial thing. And it it also makes me a little worried. It's like, oh yeah, I have the old white guy podcast that I really like. You know, <laughs> 10 years, 15, well, 20 years older than I am. And I've I I heard like... you speak to Robert Wright, so I know it's yeah. not completely parasocial. No, I have. I've interviewed him. Uh I, I interviewed him, or I was... Norman Finkelstein and Robert Wright were on my podcast to discuss uh Norman's book and the question of censorship recently, but uh, and I've interviewed Mickey Cows too, so it's not completely parasocial. But you know, they, they don't—I don't think they—they they listen to my podcast on any. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, and uh yeah, but that's that's it. So I would, but it. it all I'm really saying is, if if I had gone to myself in 2009 when I started podcasting and said, "Hey, if I go back in time and say, "Hey, Doug," within, what has it been, how long has it been, like 15, 14, 15 years, something like that, you're going to be just really digging centrist podcasts from a couple of old New Republic editors and completely disengaged from everything here involved in now. Because you're going to be old, I would have uh, been upset. <laughs> no and, way, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So do you think it's just a matter of us aging into this sort of uh, complacency, or or is uh, the 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 milieu changed?
0: The milieu has definitely changed. I mean, we are getting old. <laughs> there's, there's no <laughs> denying that. But it's, right. it's yeah. almost it's not worth talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. Um,
0: but yeah, as you say, when I first started, I was definitely my show was definitely part of um, a family of shows, mm-hmm. and it's definitely not anymore. And, uh, you know, I was interviewing, I would pass guests around with my peers. <laughs> fact, right. Some of our, mm-hmm. uh, our, our fallout has been when uh, you would interview c podcast guests and then, you know, want to talk about Marxism when they have nothing to say about the topic.
1: Right. Dimitri Orloff and uh, Howard Kunstler are the two that I thoroughly alienated with my uh, questions. And I, I was green, too. You know, I wouldn't have handled it the same way today as I did then. Sure. Uh, but but on the other hand, they were both assholes about it, I think. I... <laughs> well,
0: I, I was, I'm the ultimate softball interview. Um, you know, if I like somebody's book and I just get them on, I just, you know, set them up to say what I know they already have to say, and I'm not looking to... You know, catch them in contradictions or find some flaw in their worldview. It's you know, the, the worldview has already passed muster. Now I'm just saying, here, articulate it. Let me help you. Right. And so if you know, if they've gone from that to, you know, the the exact opposite of, hey, I disagree with your worldview, and I, here I've been thinking about things to to say to you know, highlight why your worldview is wrong. Then,
1: <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I was I was pretty soft still. Like I wasn't like yelling at them, or and I would. <laughs> would only ask it once or maybe twice and then move on i mean i i I, and i think i refined an approach to interviews where when i disagree with someone i am polite enough and nice enough uh to sometimes get people to actually pause uh anyway so yeah i've I've tried to i try to do that and and yeah and i've also moved into mostly interviewing people who are a little closer to being within my own Worldview so that we'll be disagreeing about finer details. And that can actually be even more combative and cause. Oh yeah. Cause no then, then
0: you're caught up in the narcissism of small differences, which is right, always petty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Always petty. And I, but you know who I enjoyed interviewing a lot was, um, Mickey Kaus who is a Trump supporter, um, voted for Trump twice, uh, supported, um, welfare reform in the nineties friends with Ann Coulter talks to her regularly and um, a former Marxist came out of uh, the SDS students for democratic society. And that was really an interesting conversation. I wasn't combative with him Um, and he wasn't combative with me either. He wasn't trying to defend anything. Um, But it was really interesting just to see how his, how he thought he had not changed at all was still completely on the left um, and yet, you know, is now a Trump-supporting welfare reform-supporting Republican, really. So that was fascinating. So... <sighs> sorry, I'm giving you dead ends.
0: No, no, it's it's not a dead end. I, I definitely have something to say on this. I'm just looking for a, an entry point. Um, you used to tell me that the, the whole peak oil mentality was a right-wing mentality. Mm-hmm. And I have since seen the destruction of the peak oil community and it broke up before the recent or the more recent, you know, cultural divide, mm-hmm. but the people who were the, the prominent figures in that community have definitely polarized, many of them going far left and many of them going far right. And many of them just, you know, shutting up and withdrawing from public life, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's bizarre. Like you couldn't. I went to the the Aspo, the Association for the Study of Peak Oil and Gas conference in Washington D.C. in two thousand and eleven. You couldn't get that group of people together in one auditorium again because they would be be at each other's throats. Uh, you know. Can you some, give me a couple of examples? Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jim Kunstler, who, for when I knew him, I mean, I still know him, <laughs> but when I was interviewing him regularly for the Zero Podcast. Uh, some of his regular talking points were that you know he's a registered Democrat, and that he's allergic to conspiracy theory. So he had no interest whatsoever in talking about nine eleven as mm-hmm. anything other than a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, now he's throwing red meat to the QAnon people. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: You know now he's he's broken far right, definitely a Trump supporter. Uh, I, you know as far as I can see, he is the victim, in, in quotation marks, uh, of audience capture. You know, he's mm. found an audience among people who mm. want to hear about how the election was stolen and, you know, how the uh, the pandemic, I don't, I can't claim to speak to his, you know, his fully fleshed out view on the pandemic. Uh, it just seems to be, you know, the, the right, the red tribe side of that, that disagreement <clears throat> mm-hmm. that he's articulating now. Uh, Dmitry Orlov. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he's a full-on Putin apologist now. He's moved to Russia. Um mm-hmm. and he has he's no longer on Substack or any of the places that I used to follow him because uh his funding had been cut off. Like he'd lost access to the bank accounts that all of those social media, you know, platforms were paying into. Mm-hmm. So he's had to completely, you know, reinvent himself um on the, the far, far right, like the, you know, Putin did nothing wrong, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, like the right of Russia, in Russia, yeah. not not the U.S. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, and then what about somebody who went left? <sighs> so,
0: I think most of the people who went left, people like, um, oh, what's his name, uh, Post Carbon Institute, uh, Richard Heinberg, definitely a mm-hmm. big, big, you know, voice in the peak oil um you know, the narrative and mm-hmm. he hasn't changed. He's one of the only peak oil people that I, you know, ever hear from who is still on that message of, you know, collapse is coming because of resource constraints. Most mm-hmm. everybody else has moved on to just culture war stuff. Cause I mm-hmm. guess that's what gets the clicks. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he, he had a very buttoned down sort of presentation with the, the post carbon Institute and he's you know, stayed in that lane and he owns it now. There's There's no competition for it. Mhm. But well, uh yeah, he he sent out something, you know, during the Trump years which basically made me just unsubscribe from his newsletter. It's it was just, you know, Trump is evil, Nazi, Nazi, Nazi. I was like, "Oh,
1: come on." Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, um I don't know. I mean, I the reason I originally said, I don't know about why people are why some people went to the left and went went to the right and it doesn't sound I don't have a good grip on the, the person you just described as being on the left, except that they were still liberal progressive. Yeah, like, he's not, he's not Marxist <clears throat> left. He's yeah, just, right. I hate Trump left. <laughs> right. Know? Which is that, that's a pretty broad swath of people. Um, but what I would say about why I like the reason I thought the peak oil ideology was right wing was because I thought it was anti modern. It was a, a, anti technology, anti progress. Sometimes even opposed to the idea of human development and freedom. Uh, it just didn't seem to be convinced that we could overcome, um, obstacles, uh, and, and find new ways to live in the natural world that, you know, there was a limit to that. And I thought that was kind of conservative and, um, Malthusian at times. And I still do, but I, I, you know, but I don't actually have the expertise to be able to say, definitively oh yeah um solar will get us beyond you know uh, fossil fuels or or fusion energy will will do the trick or you know i don't know that what the answer is there but um i just do think we have to operate on the principle of trying to be free of artificial constraints social constraints constraints that are historically developed as we investigate how we can live together more fully in the world. And I think that would include something like turning nuclear energy when, when needed um, and trying to uh, be sane about our, uh, the way we use resources, but also um, to develop new forms of uh, resource allocation. I, I my dream is a Dyson sphere around the sun, you know, and that, that kind of thing I'm, I'm all for like ever onward with our, control of and use of the natural world
0: well one of the participants in the first episode of this podcast not the one you listened to not the solo show but it was a trialogue was saying that um he, he was quoting his brother who was a translator who said that that which makes our world look more like star trek is progress <laughs> and that which takes <laughs> us away from star trek is you know the opposite of progress
1: Well, I mean, with some limits on that. I mean, with the the more styrofoam rocks strewn about will not be progress, all right? It might look like Star Trek, but no. But yeah, I get what he means, really. Yes, Yes. I agree.
0: (laughs) People motivated by a desire to explore or better themselves or better their society and they're not worried about money. Right. And not interested in acquiring it.
1: Right. They're not so worried about their own person. They're not basing what they choose to do on personal acquisition as a way to guarantee survival. Like that's already taken care of. Like Q Deanna
0: have... Troy talking to Mark Twain in the turbo lift.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> okay.
0: So <clears throat> let me go back to peak oil for a sec, because when you were telling me peak oils are a right, you know, a right wing project back in mm-hmm. like, I don't know, 2008, 2009, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, no, man, because I, I bought into the notion that right wing just equals bad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this thing that I'm interested in can't be right wing because that would imply that it's bad and it can't be bad because I'm interested in it.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Um, But now that I'm, you know, very far from those days and I'm looking back at them, I can see, well, there is there is definitely peak oil created this big tent that had people from the right and the left very comfortably mingling underneath it because it was anti-technology. And you've got a lot of people on the environmental left who were just reflexively anti-tech. Right. And you've got a lot of people on the environmentalist left who are misanthropic. They say humanity is a plague, humanity is a disease, you know, it we need to go away so that the rest of the life on Earth can thrive without us, which I I absolutely repudiate and will have no part of that.
1: Right. I mean that's crazy. Yeah. Right.
0: So but you had people like that who were attracted to peak oil because the peak oil narrative is collapse is coming, there's nothing we can do about it except to reorganize at a lower energy throughput level more locally, more human, you know, more face-to-face human interaction. That will be the future that we are all thrust into, whether we like it or not. And that was attractive to people on the left who hated humanity. And it was attractive to people on the right who hate the way that industrial society kind of neuters us all and renders a lot of our, what used to be a valuable part of ourselves kind of useless. Mm Mm-hmm you know, our ability to organize among people in the real world and to, right. you know, distribute uh, responsibilities and, and duties and rewards while looking at somebody in the eye and mm-hmm. not doing so through some large hierarchy that separates the people, you know, making the decisions that bring pain from the people who experience the pain. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the imminent collapse narrative definitely had something for both the left and the right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But. Come the cultural, you know, polarization that we've experienced over the last six or seven years, uh, that, that structure couldn't have held, but it fell apart on its own even before that happened. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. I mean, I remember going to Zuccotti Park in 2011 uh, mm-hmm. on the same trip that I went to DC for the ASPO conference. Mm-hmm. And I remember the human microphone or the megaphone. Mm-hmm. And one person would talk and everybody else would chant. And I also remember the progressive stack, which said, okay, if you're white, if you're male, if you're over a certain age, your contribution to this conversation is going at the bottom of the stack. And if you are a person of color or if you are somehow you know, a protected minority, then your contribution will rise to the top and we'll address it first. And I remember being turned off by that at the time, even though I was profoundly in support of what I took the, you know, the message to be the, mm-hmm. we need to focus on the benefit of the 99% over the 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, yeah, the, the writing on the wall was there uh, for the dysfunction of that sort of, you know, protest. The fact that it really didn't have any, <clears throat> any defined aims or any victory conditions, but it definitely had some strong opinions about who got to say what. Um, I, I, you know, looking back on that, I definitely should have seen that for what it was and it took mm-hmm. me a while.
1: Yeah, well, this idea of like the progressive stack or the approach to identity politics that has been so divisive in the last oh, uh, let, let's say decade, but certainly since two thousand sixteen, that has been around on the left for quite a while. And it's not as though it wasn't a difficulty before this latest round of the culture war. It's just it was more that... contained though. It was yeah, it was yeah.
0: niche. But yeah, I mean Kaczynski was definitely describing it
1: in great detail in his manifesto in the nineties. Right. And it was it, it helped to break up organizations in the seventies on the left. You know, um distrust between white people and black people was instrumental and used by the CONTELPRO uh you know FBI uh to 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 destroy the Black Panthers. Um, that's a kind of rough sketch of what happened. But what I would say is different now is that the Democratic Party, uh, after Trump particularly found it useful to go full radical radlib woke, (laughs) um, and mainstream the excesses of the new left and, and, which is a sixties, you know, left, and to take up what had been kind of fringe opinions within the Academy, dumb them down and and push them out. And it was just all in service of busting up the Trump coalition and the Sanders movement at the same time. But it was only one thing that was going on. It wasn't the primary Aim of the democratic party at that time and there was debates within the democratic party about how useful that approach was really going to ultimately be um but it was a strategy that was used and it was very the other thing was it was monetizable it was popular enough to get clicks it was in, inflammatory enough to get clicks people would hate click on it they would click on it because they felt affirmed by it buzzfeed created a model based on being hyper woke you know, it, it was a meme. It was a, a worldview that got legs for a variety of reasons in the last decade. And now people are still making money off of this, um, approach. The, I think the woke side actually is backing off, but it still exists to some degree and comes up from time to time. The Scott Adams cancellation might be the most recent iteration of the woke, uh, uh, political Brigade. Um, but you know, it, it has a different character. I mean, like the, the Scott Adams cancellation is a cancellation over something that he said that very few people would say was anything other than stupid at the very least and racist at the very worst. And yet for me, the problem, like with Scott Adams, with the cancellation of Scott Adams is not that I care that much about what he actually said. But that this idea that people should just be forced out of public life for saying the wrong thing has been mainstreamed, I think, on the left and the right. I I, I think that to a large degree, we don't question, you know, wh- what we think the consequences should be for wrong think anymore. And that's something that's come along. Yeah, it, it's been expressed through woke politics, but it's sort of... it. You know, even in my lifetime, it started before that. I don't know. I'm going to go back to the Twitter files and maybe I'm sort of just free associating here. But do you remember when Bush um, created the Office of Total Information Awareness?
0: <laughs> yes, I do. So the one you're talking about, they had the eye and the pyramid
1: in their. Um, Jesus, you know. I'm getting old. I'm demented. I've clearly got the dementia. Any. And, OK, so the point is that the, the younger of the two Bush boys, you know, uh, not Jeb. Let's leave Jeb out of this. It was George W. Bush. He <clears throat> he created the total inf- the office of total information awareness right after 9 11 and the goal of that organization that institution was to be able to capture and record and be able to sort through all information online all communication all over the world give the the you know, security apparatus access to everything all of our phone calls all of our emails all of our dms um you know i don't know uh, all of our myspace pages whatever it was around they wanted to be able to record it keep it in archive access it and people didn't like that and it faced a lot of um pushback and protest and uh critical responses and so they changed the logo renamed the organization (laughs) And um quiet and didn't talk about it. And then but I keep it kept going. And Edward Snowden, years later, would come forward and reveal that, yeah, in fact, total information awareness happened. They are surveilling all of our emails or they're keeping track of all of our phone calls. They have them all recorded. They could go through them all anytime they want. It's a big effort. They weren't gonna just do it at random, but it's all there. And um now with the Twitter files, we're being told that not only does the secret service or the secret you know, the security apparatus, the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, DHS, I don't know if there's a whole bunch of other uh, parts of this machine beast that I don't even remember the names of. They're all actually involved in deciding not only, you know, not only like recording and watching what we say, but determining what is acceptable to say and who can be heard and what the conversation can be they're recording the conversation and they're controlling the conversation there. And that effort of control uh, and, and you know, authoritarianism is served by woke politics, but it's also served by evangelical Christianity at times. It's also served by uh, neoliberal, uh, neocon ideology. Whatever happens to be useful in give a given moment will be the ideology that's picked up by the bureaucracy, which only has one real aim, which is to maintain its power and and control. And so I, I think that people who the, the, the big divide right now is between people who will be able to talk to the larger picture, the the authoritarian direction in which society is going, not just in the United States but around the world, and try to oppose it. And those who will get caught up in trying to figure out which side of that uh battle to, you know, for of control uh, they want to, to pick. Like, would, would they rather have Democratic overlords, Democratic Party overlords or Republican overlords? I mean, and I know this is, um I sound like I'm, I'm not saying anything new here. This has been something I might have said in 2009, but I just believe it to be accurate doesn't seem like a pose anymore. It's like yeah, it's clear. There are attempts being made to control the population and limit what we can think, limit what we can say, limit what we can do, stop us from being able to organize politically. And you know, we're being asked to participate in our own domination by choosing between woke or anti-woke politicians. It's just kind of Sad, really.
0: That was Doug Lane. So I should mention that while I'm releasing this on Wednesday, we recorded this conversation on Sunday and the Silicon Valley Bank story and the federal government's wow, amazing response to it and not necessarily amazing in a good way. That has all unfolded considerably since, you know, the conversation that i recorded here with Doug. But one thing that he really did get right, right off the bat, even without knowing much about the story, is that it is rising interest rates that you can't say that the Bank of Silicon Valley was super reckless in its investing. They bought government bonds, <laughs> you know, they just bought long-term government debt Pretty boring, pretty stable sort of investment, but it was a long term investment, and you never can predict when all your customers are going to panic and try to take your, you know their money out of the bank all at once that's a bank run you know under normal conditions, a bank only needs a tiny fraction of its actual deposits on hand to give out to customers because for the most part, customers are taking money out at a very predictable rate, and they're usually not coming in and asking for everything um, not not to you know be an apologist for the particular bank executives here. Obviously, you know, in search of returns, they did tie up customer funds in long-term investments that just, you know, could not be made liquid to give to customers. And if you put your money in the bank, it is understood that when you come to the bank and say, I want my money, they have to give it to you. It's <laughs> kind of what a bank is, right? So anyway, that part of the conversation got a little bit confused because Doug asked me a question about both banking and crypto. And in this case, particularly the Silicon Valley case, they're not really connected. It's not one topic that can be covered with one explanation. And speaking of crypto, I mentioned that I'm not really on the ideological side of crypto. I do have high hopes for some things like, you know, when you think of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, you probably think of pictures of apes, you know, cartoon apes that get sold for a bunch of money. But there are other uses for NFTs, particularly when tokenizing real-world assets and then dividing up either ownership or control of those assets uh, so that you can run, say, a business or a, a shared investment of some sort, like real estate. And these types of organizations, which can be governed in this way, are known as DAOs or distributed autonomous organizations. And I think that they do hold great promise for coordinating human action, which really That's what government is, but, you know, we don't leave everything to the government. We, we distribute power to various power centers and using NFTs to tokenize real world assets and then to create a, a system by which the management of those assets is decided by groups of people using their NFTs to vote. That seems like one promising use of the technology. Uh, now I say I'm not ideological about crypto for the most part. I'm certainly not among the group of people who think that uh, crypto is going to eventually overthrow fiat currencies, particularly of, of big governments like that of the United States. I don't really see that happening. I don't know that it would be a good thing if it did happen. But having an alternative system, one that is not subject to inflation, and by inflation, I don't mean you know consumer prices rising, I mean the amount of money in circulation increasing dramatically inflation of the money supply. I think having alternatives to fiat currencies, particularly with sound money aspects, is probably a good thing. But (laughs) I'm not a convert. I'm not a fanatic. Uh, If you have a different point of view on that topic, I'm happy to hear it out. With the old Sea Realm podcast, each episode had a title. And I decided not to do that with with these new episodes, simply because it's just one more thing... You know, It's one more item on the podcast checklist, and it's not strictly necessary. And what's more, I always chose the title last, and a lot of times it was almost an afterthought. And uh, people seem to think that I put a lot more into the titles, really, than I did. And they thought that maybe there was uh, some messaging going on in the titles. And there might have been some, but again, it wasn't deeply thought out. And, you know, if I don't pick titles, then I don't have to defend my choice of title. But if I were going to give this episode a title, it would probably be Aging into Complacency. And, you know, that was a phrase that Doug used, uh, and I wrote it down. That's that's typically how I picked titles in the past. I would just be listening for uh, phrases, evocative phrases, and I would write them down while either in conversation with the guest or later on while editing the conversation. But talking about Aging into Complacency, I'll, my shift In outlook that I think that comes with age is that I'm just not, like, I am interested in the big picture, and I certainly am interested in the trajectory of human civilization going into the future, but I'm not certain about anything. I mean, the things that I'm certain about are just, they're small, they're personal, they're close to home. I certainly don't believe that the world would be a better place if everybody adopted my point of view. I think my point of view is, is curmudgeonly and my point of view is, uh, it's just very personal these days. It, it is, I am focused on my life and the opportunities that I have left in my life to do things I've always wanted to do or to, you know, find some community, to find a place where I have people, you know, right around me that I can interact with face to face in satisfying ways. I have a little, little bit of that here, but not much. Anyway, this, this rambling that I do at the end of podcasts, I do it, uh, with less (laughs) self-consciousness on my behind the paywall show, the Sea Realm Vault podcast, which, uh, I'm, I'm open to renaming that podcast, given that the Sea Realm is, is not, you know, the, the connection to the Sea Realm is not obvious now that I've changed the name of the free show. So if you have any suggestions, I know uh Robert Wright would suggest Parrot Room, and uh, Doug calls his behind-the-paywall show the Parrot Room, but I don't really get it. <laughs> so if you have suggestions, let me know. Uh, how to communicate with me. Some of you know my email address. You're welcome to use it. I'm not giving it out anymore, though. I would suggest that if you want to post a comment, that you either find this episode on YouTube and post a comment there, or... Find the entry for it on my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash KMO. And the listings for these free shows will always be free. You're welcome to go there. You don't have to support me on Patreon in order to post comments or interact with me or with the other listeners on Patreon. But this conversation with Doug Lane is really just getting rolling at the point where I left it off here in this episode. There's another 20 minutes Worth of Conversation, which will be in the Sea Realm Vault podcast. It will be episode number 450 of the Sea Realm Vault podcast, which you can get on my Patreon page. And in that, we talk a lot about the war in Ukraine. As I mentioned to Doug, I don't have strong opinions on that, but you know, if you're Red Tribe or Blue Tribe, you do. You share the opinions of your tribe, which of course are polarized, Uh, antithetical to one another and infused with hostility and disgust for the other side. So right now in the first quarter of 2023, if you're a good Blue Tribe member, then you are in favor of spending whatever it takes to, uh, aid the Ukrainian freedom fighters in their righteous battle against the evil invader. Not saying that's wrong, even though my tone, you know, my tone of voice there is somewhat mocking. Uh, I just, you know, it's a viewpoint, but it's one that I'm not invested in. And then I think I don't, I don't follow the red tribe quite as closely as I do the blue. But I, I think the red tribe position is, we've had enough of war. Putin didn't attack us. Ukraine is not an allied state. Why are we throwing so much of our own just treasure in this instance? It's not blood and treasure like we usually do. Uh, why are we throwing so much treasure at Ukraine when we have needs here at home that are going unmet? If I've got either of those positions wrong, if you if you are a member in good standing of either the mainstream blue tribe or the mainstream red tribe and you want to tell me what I got wrong, well I welcome your input because again, these are just impressions that I have formed from my cursory interactions with the mainstream media and the mainstream alternative media. On the topic of peak oil, I you know, as often happens, uh, Doug asked me a question and the answer that I came up with was eh, it's okay, but of course, you know, in the editing and listening to the conversation a second time, I came up with a better example of how the the polarization of mainstream culture has broken up the what used to be harmonious factions within the peak oil community. And one excellent example, and if my voice sounds a little different here, I'm re recording this bit. Because uh, I'm not looking to make any enemies here, and I'm going to be as as diplomatic as I can be. But the Automatic Earth website, a blog that I associated with Peak Oil uh, back when I was part of that community, was written by two authors, uh, Nicole Foss, otherwise known as StoneLay, or she wrote under the pen name StoneLay, and uh, her partner in blogging, Raoul, I think his last name is Mayor or Major, uh but he published and still publishes on the automatic earth under the name Ilargi. Well, the last time I spoke to Nicole Foss, she had she told me that she had basically um cut off all ties with Ilargi because he had gone full Trump maga and you know, she went the other way. And I don't know. I haven't spoken to either one about this, but I could imagine that each of them would say that they didn't really change um fundamentally but that their partner in blogging went nuts, you know, at the beginning of the Trump years. I don't have a dog in that fight. I'll say no more about it. Point being, these are two people with rather different viewpoints who are polarized now, who will not work together now, who previously ran a blog together. But Doug's position, which I guess is a, a fairly mainstream Marxist position, if mainstream Marxist is not a contradiction in terms, that technology is quite powerful and you know the, the things that seem to be impediments to continued technological development and economic growth really aren't, and that human creativity and ingenuity will overcome those impediments. That happens. (laughs) Look at history. It certainly happens. And, you know, what also happens is that new innovations and new ways of doing things bring with them unanticipated consequences. And when I say unanticipated consequences, I'm not talking about benefits. So all of this just I file under the heading of life is complicated. The global system is extremely complex. And one known feature of complex systems is Nonlinear behavior. Unexpected outputs, given the inputs. Weird stuff happens. Unexpected stuff happens. Stuff happens that causes us, if we're still adaptable and not curmudgeonly and rigid with, you know, age, <laughs> things happen which should cause us to re-examine our priors and to always always maintain a certain level of humility when it comes to our certainness as to how right we are about what's actually happening in the world. I call it epistemological humility, but you could just call it knowing your limitations. Each of us is a human being with a limited scope, a limited vision of what's happening, and a limited ability to describe and much less predict what's going on and what will happen next. So, not that you're looking for advice, but uh, my advice is stay curious, pay attention, but hold your opinions lightly. And forgive others whose opinions differ from yours. All right, that is all for this third regular installment of the new KMO show. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you again in one week's time.